Today we're going to dive into our 24th sermon in the book of John. I was reflecting upon how many sermons we've been in uh, about a year, uh, not, not completely, but almost a year we've spent in the book of, of, of John. Uh, we've had a few other series in there that have broken up that year. Today we're going to cover six verses. We spent four weeks on one. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this sermon this week, because it's always a challenge. And I imagine if you've ever uh, taught out of the Bible in a small group, a Bible study, or just sharing with a friend some truths from the Scripture, maybe you've preached a sermon in some setting. And even if you haven't done that, I'm sure you can understand this principle. It can be hard to know how much to cover and how much not to cover in a particular setting. I find that challenge week in and week out as I prepare for sermons here. Did you know that there's roughly 31,000 verses in our English Bible? And you also would know that some of those verses contain things just like lists of numbers, lists of names, uh, maybe maybe kind of what feels like obscure Old Testament laws or ceremonies or uh, uh, describing a, a piece of furniture in the temple or tabernacle or something. Verses that don't feel like they have any immediate relevance for that day. If you were to take that one verse, right? But you also know, of course, that there are plenty of other verses in the Bible that just a single verse by itself, you could unpack for weeks, maybe months, that are worth memorizing and repeating yourself over and over and over because of all the wisdom and truth contained in one verse. If you were to... Just read one Bible verse a day and study just one verse a day, starting in Genesis, working through Revelation, to cover every verse in the Bible will take you about 84 years. That's some verses you kind of go quickly through and others you spend a few more days on. If you were to attend a church that preached on one verse a week, every Sunday sermon, one verse, it would take 600 years to get through the Bible. Today we're going to cover six verses. I think that's appropriate pace. I, I think it's God-honoring to preach on a word, <laughs> one word in a verse, or an entire chapter, even a whole book can be God-glorifying in a particular kind of sermon. I have no judgment on the length that somebody might take to preach on or how many verses a person might preach on in a sermon. But I would want for every sermon that I ever preach to ultimately herald the supremacy of Christ. To not merely pique one's interest in one of the many doctrines that the Word of God contains, but for each sermon to in some way drive you to a greater love for Christ and trust in Him. And I endeavor to do that week in and week out My hope today is to do that exact same thing. And praise be to God, the verses that we run into now make that job pretty easy because of what we're about to cover. I couldn't possibly walk through all the things that are in this verse, not only these six verses, not only because we don't have time, but also because I just don't know enough. My knowledge on these verses is limited. But I would appeal to you, to spend some personal time studying through these passages to get as much as you can out of them. 
My commitment to you this morning is to try to explain these verses and to point you to Christ. If I've accomplished that in any way, then I can be pleased. But before, before we just dive in, I want to read through those verses and pray and ask the Lord to help accomplish that very thing. So let's read John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. It'll complete the chapter. And then pray and ask the Lord to help us with it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord, as I just asked a moment ago, set up this prayer even, we're going to you humbly appealing to you, asking for you to give us the wisdom to grow in our knowledge of Christ this morning in these verses. Father, I know of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, there are many, most, that don't mention the name of Christ. Some that don't seem to be pointing and only and directly to him and the content that they have. Lord, we know that this whole book, all 66 of these books bound together here, have been, have been inspired and then written, collected and preserved throughout history that we would know you more fully, that salvation would be preached to the ends of the earth because we know that it is faith by hearing of the word of God that people will come to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use these verses just like the rest of this Bible, to draw us near to you, give us a greater love and trust in our perfect Christ and that would compel us towards holiness and evangelism and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We were in John 3 wrapping this up this week and we've just finished up two conversations that John chapter 3 contains, two discussions. The first is between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. We spent most of our time on that very significant discussion. Last week, we spent our time on the second conversation that John chapter 3 contains, and that was the conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. Are you familiar with the passage, or we're here even last week, you'll remember that that was John's disciples expressing concern that their disciples... In that camp, John the Baptist's camp, were wandering away downstream to Jesus' camp where his disciples were baptizing. And they're saying, John, look at this. People are going to Christ instead of Jesus instead of you. And John the Baptist is a wise and good rabbi doing exactly what he was designed by God to do, summarizes the ease of their concern by saying to them, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's an awesome summary of what every one of us should be able to say. 
Now, you, if you were to study this on your own, you might quickly find this. I'm going to give you a real short excursus here and something you'll find quickly if you're to study this passage on your own. Some of you in your Bibles, your English Bibles right here, at the end of verse 30, look at the end of verse 30, you'll see quotation marks. And that, that's, that's uh, indicating in our English grammar that that quotation is finished. In other words, John the Baptist has done speaking. If you have the ESV, it's like that. A handful of the other English translations will be that way. But some of you, you won't see quotation marks there. You're not going to see them until you get to the end of verse 36. Some of you look at there, you'll see. Now, the reason this is a question is because, as many of you probably know, Greek, the original language this would have been written in, does not have quotation marks. So here's the, here's the, 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 the mini problem. And here's, I'll call it a mini problem. I'll explain in a second. It's a mini problem because we don't know who is saying these exact words we're going to be studying through today. Is this John the Baptist continuing to preach to his disciples? Or is this John the evangelist? That's the author of John's gospel. Is, that, is this John the disciple of Jesus? It is his words, his narration to summarize the end of this chapter. You guys get the, get the question? There's debate as to who's speaking here. And my, the commentators I studied on this are about half and half, to be totally honest with you. But no one spends too much time on it, and here's why. Because there's no debate as to the truthfulness of the words. The question is merely, did John the Baptist say these true things about Jesus, or did John the Evangelist say these true things about Jesus? Make sense? See the problem? So that's why I'd call it a mini-problem. I don't personally uh, have a very strong opinion on this, uh, but I am at least mildly persuaded by uh, Augustine and John Calvin and a handful in that camp who would say this is most likely, I think, John the Evangelist. I think John can't help himself as he finishes concluding writing about what John the Baptist said, and he has to give his own commentary about why Jesus is so amazing. I think that's the case. I think that's what the text bears out. Could be wrong for you to decide. John's disciples were getting defensive of their ministry. John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. And what follows next is our text. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John reminds us here of Jesus' divinity. John loves doing this. In fact, I think that John does this more clearly than any of the other gospel authors. Uh, He gives us these succinct, pithy little statements, oftentimes from the lips of Christ himself, that certify who he is. Tell us where he's come from, why he's different than all humankind. John, in this gospel, does that more than any other. That's why one of the reasons I think that, especially in Utah, where the question of our many of our LDS neighbors is oftentimes about the person of Christ. Who is he in relation to the Father and to us? Is he just a brother? Is he just ahead of us in time? Or is he altogether different to be worshipped? Okay, that's a significant question in Utah. So I think that's why the gospel of John is one that, especially here, we love to share with people and encourage our Mormon neighbors and friends uh, to engage with, because it really does show Jesus saying how different he is from us. I just want to show you a few places that you see this. It'll help us for our time today. Back in chapter 1, John wrote this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one's ever seen God, right? No, no one's seen God, but there is God at the Father's side, Jesus, who is God at the Father's side. He has seen him, and he has made him known. This is the intro to Jesus' ministry. John 5, 37. Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Get it? Jesus is saying, you've never seen him. You've never heard him. I have. I'm different than you, people, humankind. I have seen. I have heard. You have not. The Father himself has sent him. John 6, 46. Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the Son, who is from God. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is talking about himself. Y'all have not seen the Father. Only the one who was sent. Which he says about himself repeatedly. He's the one who was sent. And lastly, John 8, 23. Jesus said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Jesus regularly in the Gospel of John distinguishes himself from his audience in this way. I am from somewhere you're not from. I have heard what you have not heard. I have seen what you have not seen. And so he is bearing witness to those things before the people. John does this more than any other gospel writer. He compares Jesus from heaven with everyone else. And that's what he's meaning here to say, he who comes from above is above all. And what does he do? He immediately compares he who is from above from everyone else who is not from above. He says it in this way. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And that he distinguishes from the one who comes from heaven. Paul, later in his letters, does something very similar. He does it a handful of times. But he really tries to make it clear his audience understands. Jesus is from elsewhere. He is of elsewhere. He is heavenly. You are earthly. He does this all the time to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as distinct from any of the glories or praiseworthiness we might see in humankind. Uh, one of the places he says this I find really helpful. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 49. He uses the example of Adam, first man, Christ, second man. He's done this a few times in his writings, but he does it here in 1 Corinthians. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. It's Adam. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul, I think, is saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 as John is saying here in chapter 3. Someone's from above and everyone else is from below. One is from heaven and all the rest are from the dust. Who's he talking about? Everybody. That's why he even says it in that way. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Anyone you know of from the earth speaks in an earthly way. 
that of course includes everybody, probably most on his mind is John the Baptist, who just explained the purpose of his ministry is to pass the baton to somebody better, someone who is greater than him, someone whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. That's the way John the Baptist talks. Of course people should go that way to Jesus. That's the point that was just made. And John the Baptist here, like everybody else, is judged as belonging to the earth and speaking in an earthly way. This doesn't mean that there's nothing spiritually true, but what John says, it's not talking at that kind of language at all. It's saying that he's from the earth. He will have earthly limitations, the kind that Christ does not yet have. It's not a slight on John. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus makes it very clear of how highly people ought to think of John. When he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, that's, that's great language, among those born of women, among those of the earth, flesh begets flesh, spirit begets spirit, of those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. High praise. Of all the prophets, preachers, priests, spiritual leaders in the, in the history of the world, in the pages of the Bible and beyond. No one has ever received such praise as this. And at the end of the day, that John the Baptist is just a man. He's just a man. And no matter how great the teaching of that man, it's still just that, the teaching of a sinner with all of his limitations. The greatest thing that he ever did was point to Jesus. Make straight the paths. The greatest preacher, the greatest pastor and teacher or discipler that you will ever know in your life is only great insofar as he or she points you to Jesus. If you've ever walked into a pastor's study, the room that he uses to study and see his bookshelves, uh, I have one of these. I, virtually every other pastor friend that I know has a place that he keeps all of his books somewhere. Unless he's one of those digital guys, those modern freaks who only keeps it on a pad or something. You go into his book room, you're going to see all the books on the shelf. He probably even has a heretic shelf. All the guys he doesn't believe in, but I need to study, they're down here. Don't mind the heretic shelf. But he's going to have a, a list of trusted authors, and those you're going to probably notice. Hi, I recognize that name, that name. Oh, it's, this sounds like you have two or three from this brother or sister who has something helpful to say, or this, this pastor in history, this theologian, this scholar. Because we have to make judgments, we have to make decisions about which voices and which influences we're going to trust in. In fact, you can find out a lot about a pastor if you ask him, who are your greatest spiritual influences? Who do you podcast? What books do you listen to? Who's the greatest living and dead scholar or pastor, teacher you've ever heard? It's an awesome way to get down to brass tacks on what a person believes. But the most influential people in your life, no matter how trustworthy they are, and we have some wonderfully trustworthy people in history and in present, very grateful for that. Whether you're a pastor or not, those influential people being parents or siblings, your spouse, a trusted teacher, modern or past, a coach, a friend, at the end of the day, they're just sinners like you. Imperfect, flawed, limited, 
And you should be armed with this. So that when it, inevitably you read his eighth book and go, well, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Hopefully you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Be grateful for all those things in spite of limitations. And how can we do that? Because they are not your savior. That's not the role of the people who have been influencing your life. All they can do is tell you what they know, which is greatly limited. If you haven't learned this yet, you will. I want to especially speak to the younger people in the room for a moment. This is true especially for younger people. This is, this is also true again at other seasons in life when you have those Copernican revolutions, a shift in thinking or ideology. God does something in your heart. You, you, you run into something in, in, a, in an experience, and all of a sudden your thinking shifts. This happens to you in all, all different categories. But young people, listen carefully. The most essential outcome of this present season in your life is that you will begin to transfer your dependence upon and trust from your parents to others. That's what you're going to do. You're going to transfer your trust from one group of people to others. When you were born into this world, you don't get to choose who you trust. You get that. You were assigned those people by default. You did not get to choose who fed you. You did not get to choose who raised you or disciplined you. You did not get to choose what type of religion, let alone what church you would go to. You did not have any decision, any decision at all, decision-making ability at all in where you live, who your extended family members are, those who have influence over you. None. Those are assigned to you. It's all apart from your will. And even by the time that you're uh, 10, 12 years old, something like that, You have very little control over who those people are. But over the next decade of a young person's life, that power will be almost entirely shifted into your hands. You will get to decide who influences you. In fact, that is the most significant thing that will be happening to you in that season of your life. And adults, some of you can go, I I, I kind of know what that season can be like even as an adult. Yes, that can happen again in your life. This is why there's so often strife between teens and their parents. Why? Because they're challenging their default authorities. They're finally going, well, wait a second. I've been following and listening to and submitting to and obeying and trusting all these. Well, are they trustworthy? Should I submit to that? that Some of this is good, and it gets out of control because we're all sinners. But you need to transfer trust from those default authorities and influencers in your life To someone of your choosing, you will get to choose that. It's more important than what you learn in school. It's more important than math and science and history. More important than any of that. You can learn all of that later in your life. But who you choose to trust to influence you will be the most significant thing. The greatest influence in your life must, must be Jesus. All the other human influencers in your life must be those who point you to him. You get that? That must happen. I know that in many ways in our culture, uh, 
I'm thinking of events that happened in 2020 and beyond that started to shake and rattle people's trust in authorities and governments and medicine and elections and, oh, goodness, the whole country and our world is in these conversations all the time. You have to choose who you're going to trust. Paul warns us. Paul in the Bible warns us of what influencers are a danger to your soul at a spiritual level. And he summarizes this kind of warning. In fact, all of the New Testament writers, almost entirely, every author in the New Testament will tell you how to watch out for and be warned to not follow false influencers, false prophets, false teachers. The only exception of James in the New Testament is a couple pieces in James. Paul says that anyone who would teach contrary to the gospel that we have received from Christ would be a danger to your soul. Maybe the, the, the best summary of that that I find in Paul's writing is in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You, hearing what, you hear what Paul says, and that's why I think this is such a helpful one to go to in this category. No matter how intellectually strong and rational, rational or beautiful or wise or trustworthy the messenger might seem, that influencer is one that I want to submit to. That person could be an angel or an apostle. He says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received... Let him be accursed. No matter how trustworthy you think the messenger, if he preaches contrary to Christ, run. Conversely, staying with Paul, he provided an example in himself for the proclamation of the gospel in Corinth, the simple proclamation of the gospel of truth, the gospel of Christ. He's one of the most brilliant men who's, who's ever lived. There are even atheists who study the writings of Paul and say, we don't believe what he said, but that guy's a genius. Whoever this Paul guy is, whoever wrote on behalf of him, that guy is genius. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, about his proclamation of the gospel when he first arrives in, to Corinth. He says, when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is how all teachers will be measured. You must choose wisely. Jesus is above all. He is greater than John. He is greater than anyone else. He is above everyone else is from the earth. Take everything else that is said with that grain of salt. Verses 32 and 33 say, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. This is why Jesus' speaking is so significant, because everything that he says comes straight from heaven. He is an eyewitness to the things he's saying. Not only is he divine, but he literally came from where you want to get. We all want to get to heaven. If you don't want to go to heaven, you don't listen to Jesus. You won't care what he says at all. 
You know, as I was a U.S. Marine, there was a tradition that we did every year uh, at November 10th. So we celebrated the Marine Corps birthday. And wherever you are in the world as a Marine, on November 10th or the closest weekend to it, there would be a, a ball, the Marine Corps ball that celebrated. Marines are all about tradition. And wherever you are, you can literally be out doing a field op, sleeping under the stars or doing fire watch in a fighting hole, and you will in some way or another, uh, by command down the ranks, celebrate in some way the Marine Corps birthday. And one of the traditions is that you, you, you get dressed up in the best clothes you have available to you, again, whether it's covered in mud or if you can put on your dress blues. And everybody gets together. And they have a Marine Corps cake. This is a part of every single celebration. And the Marine Corps cake is to be cut right down the middle by two parties with a sword or a K-bar, biggest knife you have available to you. And the two Marines who do this are the oldest and the youngest Marines present. That's the tradition. And they get together, and whether it's pound cake from your MRE, or it's a nicely baked cake from the nearby bakery, and the oldest and youngest Marines come and cut that cake, and that's, that kicks off the celebration on that particular night. I remember there was one Marine Corps ball that I celebrated uh, where they called the youngest Marine, some 17-year-old came, come, comes walking up, and then they, uh, they asked for the oldest Marine to come forward. And he was in his mid-90s. He was a World War II veteran. He was a, a survivor uh, of the first wave of attackers that hit the beach at Iwo Jima, one of the most significant battles in, in World War II. Uh, they, they, they took Mount Suribachi against great odds. You have all, every one of you, has seen a picture or statue of that event. You've, you've seen it. It's the most famous picture in, uh, in uh, war history of the six unnamed Marines, one of them is actually a sailor, holding the flag planted into Mount Suribachi and lifting it up. You see, you've seen it before. Flag's on an angle just like that. And this man was there to have seen all of that. After the, the ceremony was done and everybody went back to their seats, a whole group of Marines gathered around to just sit and listen to this old, crusty dog. With a, he was still wearing his blues. He had a pile of medals. He walked with a limp and a cane. And we asked him questions about Iwo Jima, what it was like to be there on this incredibly awful but fateful day in American history. And we sat there and listened and listened. He was an eyewitness to those events. And do you know what? You know who we didn't care about speaking at that time? The 19-year-old who read a book about it. And the 40-year-old who saw a movie on it. We wanted to hear from the experiences of those men who'd been there and the one who's now sitting in front of us. Jesus is our eyewitness of heavenly things. Literally, it's what it says. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard that no one else has. When he shows up and starts to speak, that should silence everybody. But that's not what happened. Yet, no one receives his testimony. And a great and surprising injustice, John tells us, no one receives his testimony. Now, I think no one here is hyperbole. John does, in fact, tell us of many people who do receive Jesus. 
In fact, remember, many, many were leaving John the Baptist's camp to go to Jesus. Many were going there to receive Jesus. Even in chapter 1, he says, he came to his own. Jesus came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. One of the main points that John repeatedly makes throughout this gospel is that Jesus is largely rejected by his own people. It's one of the main themes, Jewish rejection of Jesus, we see in John, especially the first half. People would walk up to Jesus, would join the crowd to hear him preach, observe a miracle, and then go, eh, and walk away. Or worse, hatred and fury, and they would join the crowd that cried out, crucify him. People repudiated his message. And the only reason that this extraordinary act of imprudence and folly is not utterly shocking to us, the only reason that does not take the breath out of this room is because it's all too familiar to us today. We know the rejection of Christ. We know the repudiation of his word. We know the abandonment of his person. In fact, some of you might have a tear come to your eye when you, when you remember when that was your state, when you lived in rejection of Christ. Yet by God's grace, some do receive him. And that's what he goes on to say. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He sets his seal to this. What's that language? Some of your, your Bibles might say something like, the one who has accepted his testimony has certified that God is true. It's other English language saying the same thing. The idea, it's like a signature. It's, it's, the, it's the seal. You know, the, the wax seal, the king would have like a ring and he'd press it on the, the wax to make this imprint and it would be a certification, an endorsement that whatever was contained within that had his approval. That, that's the idea. The one who receives Jesus signs his or her name to certify, to endorse. In fact, later in John, a few chapters from now, we'll hear that God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. It just says this in John 6, 27. For on Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. Same, same language. God has put his endorsement, his authentication, his approval on Christ. And when we receive Jesus, we put our stamp, we put our approval on Christ. 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. The point is this. If you believe in, if you receive Jesus, that belief is an endorsement of God. By that belief, you are testifying that God is true. That's what you're, that's what you're doing. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was surrounded by people who claimed to be God's people, Jews. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. Our families came through the Exodus. They sat beneath the, the rulership of King Saul and David and Solomon and the rest. We were, like both sides, Israel and Judah, taken into exile because of our wickedness and repented and restored. And that's us. We're the people of God. 
and yet they rejected God's Son. But no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't have one without the other. He continues in verse 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What does that mean, that he gives the Spirit without measure? That means that he gives the Spirit without limit, not sparingly. So if you have to measure in some flour into a recipe, uh, that, that, that's, that's measuring it in. Put a cup. Without measure is you take the bag and dump it. Get it? It's the full thing. It's everything. It's without hesitation. It's without limitation. That's the without measure language. We know, the Bible tells us this, Old Testament and New. Old Testament and New, that the, the Son, this Messiah, will have God's Spirit poured upon him. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. There's no limitation there. Jesus has unlimited power. In other words, he never tries to do anything. Get that? You and I try to do things. We might be successful. Jesus doesn't endeavor without success. He never sets his mind to something and comes up short. He never goes back to his father and his father says to him, well, you did your best. Never happens. Everything he intends to accomplish, he does perfectly. And this cannot be said to be true about any prophet, any preacher, any spiritual leader in the history of the world. The Old and New Testament testify to this truth. Let me show you Proverbs 19.21. You, you might recognize this one. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I thought that was especially helpful because it distinguishes between the way you and I try to get things done and the way that Jesus actually gets things done. You and I can plan everything we want. We will not succeed with the certainty that Christ can because the purpose of the Lord will stand. Job, in his incredible ordeal that he goes through, cries out to God in frustration as to why he's going through and enduring these hardships that the Lord has brought upon him. And by the time he gets to the very end, the final chapter of that incredible book, Job is summarizing some of the learnings that he had through that experience. And one of the things that he says is this in Job 42, too. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Just endured the most atrocious loss and pain that we could imagine. And he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's true of our perfect Christ. And it is by this gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus utters the words of God. That's what the language says. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God, for he, has, he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Does it sound familiar anywhere else? First thing that came to mind to me was Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, Jesus says. The Father has given him, granted him authority over what? All authority in heaven and on earth. Everything is his. He has authority over every square inch of creation. Up, down, all of it's his. And this, again, cannot be said to be true about anyone else. Jesus is unique. He is from heaven. We are not. He's been given the Spirit in full measure in a way that we have not. He has been granted all things given by the Father in a way that we have not. All authority in creation, everything else is derivative authority. It comes from somewhere else. It depends upon upon something else. But Christ's authority is original. It is absolute. Your salvation rests in his hands, the one who has all authority. And that's what John says next. Verse 36, a glorious summary to this chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is what you need. You must believe in the Son. And if you do, eternal life is yours. If you do not, then you remain under the wrath of God that you justly deserve because of your sin nature. We spent weeks talking about that as it came earlier in John chapter 3. But if you're not a believer today especially, you need to know this. You are deserving of God's just judgment. You're a sinner like the rest of us. You're under his wrath. You're deserving of punishment. And unless that is paid for, it will land on you when you die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sends his perfect Son from heaven, full of the Spirit, been granted all things, to go to the cross, to die a sinner's death, that whoever believes in him shall not have to die for their own sins, but Christ dies for their sins instead. If you haven't repented of your sin and turned to faith to Jesus Christ, it's your only hope. That's the gospel call for you today. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Turn from, surrender all the things that you've held onto in your life. And yield to Christ. And just as he was buried and then raised to new life, when you die someday, you will be buried, but Christ will raise you to new life. You will have what we call here life eternal. That's why it's called this, eternal life. God's wrath will no longer remain on you. It will be satisfied in Christ. There is no more controversial person in the Bible than Jesus. No more contended teacher. But where you will spend eternity comes down to what you think about him. The all-superior Christ. It was in John. Several chapters later, we'll see John, Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is not by our works, it's not by our effort, it's not by all the good things we think we may be able to accomplish, but it is only by the perfect work of Christ completed on the cross and his death that we can have peace with you. I pray that we would yield to that truth, remember it all the time. Father, I pray that every sermon that we ever experience here in this church will in some way be a heralding of the supremacy, the superiority of Christ. 
that we would love him deeply. So Lord, do that work, soften our hearts where that needs to happen, that we can love him more fully. Help us to proclaim the gospel truth that many others would embrace the love of Christ, his sacrifice for them, repent of their sins and turn in faith. That many more would join in worshiping his holy name for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.